Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I am so delighted to chat with fellow book lover and super talented author, Anna James. For those who love getting lost in magical worlds and dream of meeting beloved literary characters, then Anna's Pages and Co series is definitely for you. In Tilly and the Book Wanderers, which was published in 2018, we meet 11-year-old Tilly Pages, who lives with her grandparents in their bookshop, Pages & Co. On a very special day in the shop, Tilly encounters her favorite book characters, and with the help of her grandparents and best friend Oscar, she learns all about the magic of book wandering. This new power leads to some fantastic adventures and the important answers that Tilly has been searching for her whole life. Since Anna and I chatted in April, I've read and absolutely loved the second book, Tilly and the Lost Fairy Tales, which was published last year. The adventures continue when Tilly and Oscar travel to Paris to spend time with Oscar's family at Christmas. It's so exciting to get lost in popular fairy tales, meet new characters, and see Oscar learn more about his equally special book-wandering family. I had so much fun chatting with Anna about our mutual love of books, what inspires Anna's writing, and why storytelling will always be essential and important for readers today and in the future. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I have the immense privilege and joy to be here with Anna James, uh, award-winning in every sense of the word, (laughs) children's author. Uh, How are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. I am not too bad. Yeah, we're recording this kind of mid-lockdown, kind of strange time, but I'm doing all right considering, yeah. I don't think either of our imaginations could have ever concocted something like this, could we? It's just been a whirlwind, hasn't it? Yeah, although actually, uh, what is surprising is how many books do have like pandemics and things. I've been reading quite a lot of children's fiction and I keep that whole like pandemic, but with like a kind of fantasy edge is actually quite present in children's books, like a magical disease spreading. It's really interesting But I feel like right now, more and more people are really clinging to not only their favorite books, but to new books as well. And I think what's really nice, and we'll get onto in a minute about your books, that it takes us down that path of letting your imagination run wild to the absolute best that it can absolutely do. It's just, as we were kind of saying earlier when we were, before we started recording, your books are so fun and so whimsical, and there's just something so lovely about as an adult picking this up. Now that you've had your t- first two books published and, and your third one's going to be published later this year, how are you feeling about it all? Is it still just like a dream? I mean, basically, yes, it still feels very surreal. I kind of oscillate between two extremes. Most of the time, I kind of just get on with it in that it's my job and there are deadlines and edits and it's very kind of a practical day-to-day you know, I'm fortunate to do this job, but it is my job and it takes up a lot of time and work. And then I reckon like 10% of the time, I just get to this hugely sentimental, overwhelmed place and I just cry about it. And I just feel so incredibly privileged to do it. Awkwardly for me, it usually happens when I'm at school visits. I like there's something about going to a school and speaking to children who care so much about not even my book because often when you do a school visit they haven't read your book but you know they care so much about books and they're excited to meet an author and there's something about that that just like 
breaks into the, that bit of my brain that I have to keep tamped down most of the time to get on with the kind of business of writing a book. I remember at my launch party, and this is what I'd always said when I first wrote the first book was, books meant everything to me when I was a child. And all I wanted was for my book to mean that to one child. And I just felt like if there was one child out there that the book meant everything to, then I would be happy. And so when you get to meet children that it it has meant something to, it just, I think it takes me back to being a child and having that relationship with books. I don't know that I'll ever quite wrap my head around having written something that means something to a child. It's such a privilege. And we are so privileged to have these books. And I will say that my 11-year-old self and my soon-to-be 35-year-old self was very happy and very grateful to read your first book. Um, As I said to you, I haven't read your second one yet because I'm looking forward to reading the first one again and then going on to the second one. But there is, as you said, just something so wonderful about seeing a child connect with one or 10 or 20 books, Um, especially as you reach that kind of, I call it the sweet spot, which is when you're in a really confident reading age. And I think 11 was probably more or less my sweet spot reading age. I remember going to the library during the summer months um, almost every single day. And what I loved about the library that I had in Texas growing up is there was um, the children's section had a bathtub and essentially they had pillows in there and I just absolutely love that. I have to steal that for a future book. (laughs) You can have it, it's completely yours. (laughs) But what I was going to say is is that one of the things that the Texas Book Festival does, uh, they are an annual event, they have a charity side of the the festival as well because they're a non-profit and they have a a scheme where authors go into the schools and they speak to the kids and they give them a copy of the book and according to the the festival organizers and the authors that I've spoken to they've said to see a child hold that book against them and actually realize that this is theirs to keep is mm-hmm. probably one of the most gratifying experiences that you can witness because to be a child in, and to know that this is something that you not only get to read but get to take away and take it home and, and revisit it is just really special I think. So your first book Tilly and the Book Wanderers came out in 2018 and then your second book uh, Tilly and the Lost Fairy Tales came out last September and then you've got your new book the third um, installment in the series coming out September of this year. I just wanted to know in your mind of minds and in your heart of hearts when you were concocting this amazing you know premise for a story did you know absolutely from the get-go from that first writing that it was going to be a series or did you really just kind of start with the first book and let it kind of blossom from there? The honest answer to this is when I first started writing it I thought it was a standalone but I was very fortunate with the way it kind of got a publishing deal so my agent actually sent it out to publishers uh, on a partial so we sent out the first 12,000 words I think it was to publishers And I was very fortunate that people offered based on that. But it did mean that I didn't really have a clear idea of what I was doing. (laughs) It all kind of snowballed. I think we were sort of really thought we were kind of testing the water. My agent uh, was about to go on maternity leave. And I think it was a bit of a like, hey, let's just see what happens. And then it kind of snowballed. And I'm very, very fortunate that it did. I even wanted to end the first book. There's a synopsis that I had to write to send it out on submission. And I don't even know, I should find that, but 100% it will bear zero resemblance to the actual book. So I thought it was a standalone. I also thought it was a much quieter book to start with. It, it very much started as just having the characters pop up in the bookshop and not having the reverse kind of bit, which has obviously actually become 
95% of the book. But every publisher that offered for it wanted a series. I think that's very common in children's publishing. That's not my book per se. That's, you know, children's publishers love a series. All of the offers were for three books. And I was obviously delighted that they saw that potential in it. And that I would get to write three books as well. You know, as a writer, that's, you know, kind of the dream that <laughs> yeah. a publisher, they will publish three of your books. Um, and then as I kind of kept writing the first book, I was really just, it felt very like serendipitous that that had been the way it worked out because it quickly became obvious that there was just the potential for it to be a much bigger world and for it to expand outside of the bookshop. So it kind of happened accidentally, but it feels very much like it happened in the right way. In hindsight. In a very serendipitous kind of way. Do you kind of feel like a little bit of it was also because you didn't really want to say goodbye to, to your characters as well? The offers for a trilogy came in before I really had had to grapple with that conversation with myself. I had committed to writing three stories before I had finished writing the first one. So I don't know how I would have felt if it had happened the other way around. But I certainly am happy to have had the chance to stay with them longer and develop them I think Oscar in particular who's Tilly's best friend he really comes into his own in the second book I'm really glad to have had a chance to develop that friendship in particular which I think yeah really comes into his own in the second book reading it at this age as opposed to reading it at a younger age really made me as you alluded to revert back to that childhood being and there's something nice about reading something as a child and then going back to it as an adult but this wasn't in that order. It was reading it as an adult and obviously never having the, the privilege of reading it as a child. But then it made me think about how I would have loved, loved the series when, when I was a kid. And I mean, quite honestly, who hasn't dreamed of meeting their favorite literary characters? When I was younger, my favorite book was Harold and the Purple Crayon. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It's, um, it's essentially Harold as a young boy and he has a purple crayon um, and he can draw himself to go anywhere in the world. I absolutely loved it because I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be able to go anywhere and be transported. And that's really what, what books do for us. And you said that you really loved books when, when you were growing up. What kind of were your favorite books, characters growing up? I get asked at school visits a lot, what was the first book you ever read? I was read to from the start. I can remember the first book that I could when my mum realised I could read in my head. We had this huge blue book of illustrated stories, which, oh my goodness, is my life's ambition to find this book. It's one of those, like, it's not, I don't think it was a good book. It was like a big hardback and it was like illustrated stories, but not like, they weren't classics. They were, I think, maybe written originally for this book, a proper mashup of genres. I can remember like sci-fi, fantasy, like, like graphic novel, like, it was probably terrible, but I loved it. I think probably because it was so many stories and it just introduced me to so many different stories, even if they weren't very good. Sorry, I'm digressing. But basically, I, I used to read this and I remember being at home with chicken pox and my mom saying, oh, I need to go make you lunch. Hang on, I'll read it to you when you get back. And me being able, me saying like, oh no, I can read it in my head. And my mom being like, you, can, you know how to do that. And I hadn't really thought, you know, you just as a kid, I had just picked it up I guess somewhere along I'd, I'd learned how to read in my head 
I can remember her being impressed and uh, like a child me just feeling very, I was always, (laughs) I certainly respond well to positive affirmation and always have done. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of the books that I loved have made their way, well, certainly the ones that are out of copyright have made their way into Pages and Co. Anne of Green Gables was a hugely important uh, book for me. Uh, One of the first books I think that made me really cry I can just, I can remember crying. I, I mean, it feels ridiculous to do spoiler warnings on Anna Green Gables, but I don't want to wreck it if people haven't read it. But like, you know, I, something- I think you can do a few, a few little spoilers if you want. <laughs> you know, something very sad happens at the end of Anna Green Gables, the first book. And, and, and I can remember just being distraught at that. And then the other book that I can remember making me cry was I had this- beautiful book that my grandparents who very much inspired Tilly's grandparents um bought me which was an illustrated uh stories from the ballet so there uh Geraldine McGochran has written little children appropriate versions of ballet stories that have been done into ballet and they have beautiful um illustrations by Ashley Barrett and they took us to see the Nutcracker as a family and they had bought me this book I say me I think it was probably for my sister and me but it's certainly become my book um so that we could understand the story of the Nutcracker it was where I encountered Romeo and Juliet for the first time and again I used to read that little 10 page story over and over again because I knew that it would make me cry and I think that it was that first introduction to that idea of like cathartic crying like I just finished the mirror and the light and I wept through it and I think I probably would have wept through it anyway but it actually felt really good with everything going on to just have a big cry at a book and I think that story of Romeo and Juliet was where I was because I honestly I used to read it to make myself cry and uh, I think that again it's just like that even when you don't really understand what you're doing you recognize that stories kind of have that power to make you feel stuff and also to help you process how you're feeling and even when you're a child and you don't know that you're doing that you're still seeking that out but yeah Anna Green Gables massively love Anne Shirley one of my favorite characters um and then I was also uh, a really big fan of Diana Wynne-Jones and Eva Ibbotson I always say Diana Wynne-Jones is my favorite author if I have to pick one author I I say Diana Wynne-Jones um her Crestomancy series in particular I read over and over and over again and Archer's Goon I think she's probably had a huge impact to me as a writer as well she really has a lot of fun self-consciously telling stories and she does a lot of kind of genre mashup there's a book called the dark lord of dirk home which hasn't stayed i mean you can still buy it but it's got a terrible cover it hasn't been reissued like a lot of her books have i think it's because it doesn't fit neatly into modern categories i don't really know if it would be published as ya or adult now um but it's like a spoof fantasy book that kind of very self-consciously looks at the tropes of fantasy and pulls them apart and builds them up and it's very funny and that book I think had a huge impact on me as a reader and as a writer in terms of my favorite books still are books that play with story and tropes and are self-conscious in a good way in the way that they're telling you a story so that was a really long answer that barely touched on my favorite children's books at all answer it's a very a very well thought answer I love it (laughs) It's interesting just touching on the point that you made about the cathartic side of of reading a book. So I don't think that need or that desire to read a book to elicit and to command the feelings that you want to have uh, ever really goes away. I feel like kind of similar to that that song you play that reminds you of maybe dancing with your first boyfriend and, and you just tend to go back to those books that just give you that that feeling Absolutely. that you want. It's a really powerful feeling and 
those characters that resonate with you, whether you're the same age or you come from the same background or you like the same things, that connection is really important and that obviously stays with you for a really long time, which is why Matilda Pages, even at 11 years old, is such a phenomenal character. And what I would, what I would love to know is, is what she's going to do with the rest of her life. I want to know how, how she's going to conquer the world. That's an interesting question. Okay, because I am not the sort of writer who sees my characters as real, I guess. You know, when I hear writers talk about like, oh, you know, that my character's just like, they did something and I didn't have any control over it or I they are kind of existing in your head outside of the confines of your story. That is not how my writing brain works at all. And even though I love my characters, I very much see them as like, this sounds so like <laughs> power controlling, but like they're people I made up and they do what I want them to do. They don't exist in my head talking about things that aren't to do with the books. And even though I, I'm not a big planner and I, I definitely am surprised to a point when I write my first drafts in that I like to just see where the story is going I still feel like I'm relatively in control of it in terms of I'm writing and then you see a window you've created and that you, you you've created your characters and you think oh that's interesting because I hadn't thought about that but that character would react like that um, and it's not to say that either of those ways are wrong or right and I think it just happens organically how you see your characters but like I don't ever think about Tilly as an adult person I don't really see her outside the window that I've created into the story and I, this is so rich for me to say this considering I have taken other people's characters and imagined extending their stories <laughs> and I realize that I'm being quite hypocritical in saying this but I don't love like JK I wish she would just like I don't need to know like oh who Neville married unless she's writing like one thing if she's choosing to like open another window and write another story that's a different thing but I don't need the like facts like random facts as if they're existing in the world because they aren't <laughs> they're not real <laughs> um, I should be careful about this because I'm aware that I borrow other people's characters and I'm not going to mention any names I don't love books that write sequels to other people's books for me, the definition is in pages, they might meet those characters, but the rules of book wandering say that when that adventure has finished, the story is what it is. I am not changing those characters' stories. The, my characters can interact with them. They might say things that aren't in their books, but once they've come out of the book, that story reverts to being its original story. And even though obviously at points the books flirt with like what might happen if you went into you know the original edition and messed it up, it doesn't happen. And that is very much like, no spoilers to say that isn't going to happen because I don't feel like those are my characters to fundamentally change their books and their stories. So I think that for me, that's the difference between, say, writing a book, which is a sequel to a classic, and then, for example, killing one of the characters. Like, it's not your character to kill, and it fundamentally changes how... I'm like, I don't want to mention examples because I like, I don't want to, because I've read books that in themselves are great books. Yeah. But there's a, like, for example, there's a children's book that I love and there was a sequel written, which is a beautiful book, but it kills one of the characters as an adult. Mm -hmm. And I now can't read the original children's book that I love without knowing that someone it's took that content. character and killed them as an adult it's and like it changes my relationship. And I say, you know, if JK wants to write another novel, but even I haven't read the new Northern Lights books. Like, I don't want to know what Lyra is like as an adult. 
Like, I don't want to know. Those yeah. books are so important to me. I do not want to change it. And I keep seeing, yeah. like, tweets about, like, someone someone I really trust was like, oh, I don't, like, Lyra is quite, like, she's difficult to like in the new books. And I just don't want that in my brain. This reminds me of the chat that we had about Ghosts at a Watchman. Because To Kill a Mockingbird will always remain one of my absolute favorite books. And, and to read Ghosts at a Watchman was physically difficult for me because mm-hmm. of just obviously taking into account that I'm very well aware that it was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, Mm -hmm. but it was very difficult for me to read. Mm -hmm. And I remember we had a very interesting conversation about, because it's not a sequel, as you know, it isn't, but it was, it was very difficult for me to read. And I completely understand what you mean. And I think what I meant by to see what Tilly does next is just because, because, because I like her so much as a character that, that kind of like, the hope for what she could do <laughs> in the literary right. world. I'm writing three more book wandering books. So book three, which is called Tilly and the Map of Stories. I'm now right. I'm writing three more book wandering books, and I, I think I'm supposed to be being quite vague about this, but Tilly isn't going to be the main character in those three books. So it's within the world of book wandering, but it's exploring a different side of it. Um, and I, I think that I love Tilly, and she's always going to be incredibly precious to me as my first protagonist. Yeah. And I think inevitably the character that's closest to me. Uh, but I, I'm actually looking. I'm looking forward to being able to explore like a different perspective on the book wandering yeah. world. Set of, set of characters. The story I wanted to tell about her is is finished in at the end of book three, and that doesn't mean that she won't make reappearances. But like her story that I wanted to explore is that and I I have no doubt that she would go on to be genuinely I I start since I have no doubt but like I have not thought about it but that's what's so great about being able to interpret a book is that you can take it as far as or as not as far as as you want to go so um I realize that we've been talking and I've not actually asked you to give us a synopsis of what the book is about I always do this (laughs) I always get to the point where like I go first in with my questions and I'm like I've not even thought about whether people haven't read the book yet um would you like Uh, to give give a a synopsis so Tilly and the book wanderers the first book or it's called the book wanderers in America is about an 11 year old girl called Matilda Pages, Tilly for short. She lives in Pages and Co, a bookshop that her grandparents own. She lives with her grandparents uh, because her father died when she was, like when she was a baby and her mother is missing. And she realizes after Alice in Wonderland and Anna Green Gables kind of crop up in the bookshop that she is something called a book wanderer. And that means that she can travel inside of books uh, and her and her best friend Oscar, who is a book wanderer as well, kind of learn more about that world and realize there's a kind of whole like community and world around it. Her kind of family is more kind of embroiled in the kind of community and history of book wandering than she uh, initially realized. Uh, and then Tilly and the Lost Fairy Tales, or the Lost Fairy Tales in America, is set about three months after the first book over the Christmas over Christmas time. And Tilly and Oscar go to Paris. So Oscar lives with his mum in London, but his dad he's half French and his dad lives in Paris. So they go to Paris, and, and I, I don't want to give you any spoilers, but basically you can tell from the title they're sort of with fairy tales, and in the book wandering kind of war, like fairy tales are more dangerous because there's so many different versions of them that it's much more dangerous to go book wandering into them because there's lots of different versions of the stories. You know, there's often like they come from an oral tradition so they don't have that like source edition that's rooting them in but of course despite being told that they should not book wander into fairy tales somehow <laughs> Tilly and Oscar find themselves in some fairy tales you don't really have a children's book if you don't have children breaking rules 
I love it. That's a good credo for um, writing as well. You should definitely break <laughs> rules in your writing. So just to go back to Anne of Green Gables. So that was one of my favorite books and still remains one of my favorite books. My dream is to one day go to the island where uh, uh, it's yeah, originally. Too. Yeah, exactly. And I have lots of copies of it. I, I buy them for the covers because I, I find them just beautiful. I also was in love with the Megan Follows uh, Canadian series that yeah, came out. Me too. Absolutely watched that till the VHS wore out. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to read a line that I love when Tilly meets Anne for the first time. So she comes around the corner and she sees Anne. So she asks her what her favorite story is. And Anne responds with, do stories you've made up yourself count? And it made me think about how even doing so now you make up stories in your head and and maybe when you're younger they they have an expiration date in terms of you're going to think about something else but I was just wondering when you sat down to write this book and then the series how your imagination and maybe even tapping into your love of of reading and writing guided you from the idea for this book to the actual finished draft that's an interesting question like how did your imagination guide you I think like for all of my previous comments about coming at writing from a fairly pragmatic perspective there is absolutely a level of just seeing what happens I'm not a big planner at all my first drafts are essentially a kind of real-time plan and I very much let my I guess my imagination I do do quite a lot of reading before I write my first draft so like I have been reading I don't want to give anything it gives too much away actually but for the third book I've been reading things like I've read a few like histories of libraries but not for like specific research I just like to put all the ideas in my head and then I have a sort of bullet pointed list maybe like half an A4 piece of paper of bullet points of things that I want to happen although inevitably they don't happen or they happen in a completely different order and then I just sit down and I write chronologically I I write my first drafts pretty quickly and I write them from the start to the end and I don't read them back I just sit with ideas for a while and then I sit and I usually write my first drafts in less than a month sit and I just write it and it's terrible quality obviously (laughs) and then I look back and see what I've got and also obviously the bonus of being like in contract is I have an editor so I just send these terrible things to my editor and I'm like is there something there and then we kind of take it apart and put it back together and usually actually I find that like the pieces are there they're just in the wrong order Uh, and also my editor like laughs at me because my characters very much express my own frustration so I just handed in the second draft of book three but the first draft there's like a whole extended section where if I'm frustrated writing it, Tilly is frustrated in the book always. So you'll have sections where like Tilly is complaining to Oscar and saying, I just don't know what's going on. I don't know what we're supposed to do next. Do you understand what is happening? And literally, I don't realize I'm doing it when I'm typing it out and you read it back and you just have sections where Tilly is just expressing my own frustration. And she's just saying again and again and again, I don't know what happens next. What are we supposed to do? So that's how I, that's how I write a book, which I don't know if I'd recommend. I essentially rewrite for the second draft but yeah I think it's all just rooted it's all rooted in my relationship with books you know like I was a librarian uh, a children's librarian and then I was a books journalist and I, I still do bits of books journalism and I just always loved books and the whole thing is just rooted in that really it's rooted in my love of libraries and books and stories and I have the most fun thinking about turning 
kind of just the way we talk and think about books what would that look like you know sorry first book came about from just you know just playing with ideas of getting lost you know getting lost in, in a good book and I also whereas I am not the first writer who has done that and there's absolutely you know there's lots of other books out there that kind of play with similar ideas of getting lost in books although I think that most of them if I'm right use you know things like Inkheart they get lost in a book that's also a creation of the author whereas obviously Pages and Co is rooted in real books that exist because my relationship with books is rooted in real books and I love getting to kind of it's essentially wish fulfillment when Tilly book wanders to Anne of Green Gables it's me thinking, well, what would I say to Anne of Green Gables? I love that element. My mum, <laughs> she's just like, well, let's be honest, Anna, the bits in the books are the best bits. You know, everyone's just skipping through the rest of it to get to those bits. And she was like, make sure in the third book you put lots of book wandering in. But in the third book, it's a bit more abstract than that, let's say. So my mum will probably hate it. But I really enjoy that. And But yeah, I really enjoy taking those kind of ideas about story and the language we use about reading and our relationship with books and kind of thinking well what if that was a literal magical thing what would that look like book three has been I think my favorite to write what you just said there it made me think of um Jasper Ford's series which I absolutely loved um so the Jane Eyre affair I don't know if you've read it I actually I read it when it first came out so probably like 10 years ago and I must admit when I finish writing these books the first thing I'm going to do is reread them I haven't reread them yet like I don't people often recommend me books that are to do with like magical books and libraries and I just I can't read them like I've never read Inkar and I'm not going to read it until I hear it I don't want other people's ideas of how to interpret traveling into books because obviously I'm never going to purposefully plagiarize someone writing is you you are pulling on a big pool of all the books you've ever read certainly inspire like absolutely Jasper Ford has inspired my books absolutely but in a abstract way not in a concrete way and I have purposefully not reread them so I don't inadvertently I mean they're they're obviously like the tone is wildly different so I want to take us away from pages and co for a second and I want to talk about the British underlibrary which I'm secretly hoping actually exists but you joke I get letters from children saying that they're going to ask their parents to go and try and find it I get very anxious about them being disappointed (laughs) I'm glad like I purposefully put the entrance somewhere that has no public access so you can't literally go and there's not the lift door but it makes me so stressed and I feel I need to like apologize to parents for their kids like taking them to the British Library but then the British Library is an amazing magical place to visit and I hope that they enjoy it anyway I don't know I was a child when I read Harry Potter and I feel like I didn't get a letter from Hogwarts it's here at the British Underlibrary where Tilly's grandfather takes her and Oscar to meet the librarians that are there who a little bit of a spoiler but um, Tilly's grandfather used to be a librarian there and I really really like this line in Latin which I'm gonna butcher it probably because I did not <laughs> study Latin uh, in school but I believe it's pronounced uh, legare est per which we find out means to read is to wander and just given everything that's happening at the moment giving everything that's kind of changing so quickly Mm -hmm. I feel like the role of storytelling will always be vital as a human race we've been telling stories for eons and eons and as a beautiful storyteller yourself I would love to know whether you think we need storytelling now more than ever 
my family is very religious. I grew up in the countryside. Like books were how I learned that the world was bigger than I had been told, that there was people who I had been told thought this, this and this. And then I novels were how I realized that there was nuance to everything. And it's how I learned about people's experiences that weren't like mine. And I just don't think that is ever going to be not an important thing and a way that children in particular understand that so even though at the moment obviously everything feels very big and scary and even when you individually are in a stable happy place I just can't imagine a time when reading and writing and sharing stories isn't gonna bring value whether that's for empathy or comfort or escapism or like whatever stories do there's just never gonna be a time when there isn't a story that isn't appropriate and important yeah irrelevant I can honestly say hand on heart that there will never be a time that I will not go to books for almost anything I can't think of a single thing that I wouldn't go to a book for and it really makes you grateful and appreciative for the fact that we can have this outlet that books provide us. I think it's really easy, especially when things like this are going on, to kind of bury your head in the sand a little bit and, and put your hand up and, and say, well, if it's not directly affecting me, then I'm, I'm not going to pay it as much attention as I would if it, it is directly affecting me. And I think what has changed, and I, I certainly hope for the better when we come out of all of this, um, whenever that may be, is that the world will be a much kinder and a much more understanding place. But at the same time, I hope that this downtime, so to speak, has opened doors and, and windows and, and, and eyes for everyone reading as well. They're hopefully reading a bit more thoughtfully they're reading a bit more creatively and not just using books as escapism but reading them for education purposes being more empathetic basically is what I'm trying to say yeah I mean I would say as well though that of course like you can read a book for escapism and it can still engender empathy and I think that also I think it's really important that while I absolutely agree with what you're saying I do also think that if people are finding it difficult amazing thing about reading you can read for whatever you need it to be you yeah. just want to read for escapism and that's completely valid like and yeah. just isn't even the right word like and I think that we shouldn't be putting pressure on ourselves as well to like do anything at the moment like mm-hmm. you know you don't have to write a novel or read you know all the books you've been meaning to read mm-hmm. you don't have to read at all I think that it's that thing about kindness that you say like there's no rules for how to deal with a time like this yeah. and I personally for me books are going to be a huge comfort but yeah people should absolutely just take care of themselves as best they can whether that's reading or not and if they're reading whatever that reading is yeah absolutely and it's certainly a time to think at least for me find those books that bring you that comfort if that is what indeed brings you comfort um, which is certainly the case so going back to the British underlibrary so this is where Tilly and Oscar learn from their granddad and from Amelia who is one of the librarians there that book wandering is a thing and how essentially they're getting kind of an introduction to how it works and it just made me want to ask you if you held the title of librarian of the underlibrary that kind of goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier in terms of the books that you have read that impacted your life but I was just wondering what books you would uh, insist that all book wanderers have to visit and experience as part of their learning that's interesting when they first go to the underlibrary they learn how to book wander in one of those learn to read books I think they have different characters in all different countries and I think we even changed I think there's different names in the American edition because it's like Peter and Jane here and I do think that like just practically speaking obviously if you're learning to book wander then you should go somewhere super safe I think about this too literally I think because I spend so much time thinking about books and what would happen if you book wandered into them because if you're going to say which book everyone should read I would 
would sing Northern Lights by Philip Pullman. I think that that had a huge impact on me. I think it says important things about standing up for what's right and resisting authority. But I don't know that you would want a book one to that. Like, it's very dangerous. And like, so there's the difference between what books I would say everyone should read. In terms of what books that people should book one or two, well, if you're learning how to do it, go somewhere really safe. <laughs> uh, but in terms of kind of an impact on you, I mean, it's hard to argue with Anne of Green Gables, to be perfectly honest. I think everyone should read Anne of Green Gables. She's an extraordinary character. And it's also a safe place to book wonder. <laughs> so the whole reason that I dyed my hair the beautiful color that you have naturally <laughs> is because I wanted Gilbert Blythe to call me carrots. Um, um, I don't have my puff sleeves, but... But, um, but I, I do have my red hair, which is great. Looking more kind of in depth to other characters that don't necessarily spend a lot of time in the book, but one in particular that we find out is very special to Tilly. And unfortunately, she is a character that we only see kind of pieces of. Um, and then we, we then get to, to find out who she is later in the book. And Oscar, who you said is is Tilly's friend, they reform their understanding of how exactly they book wonder. They go off and they, they look at Treasure Island and they have a little bit of a, a mishap in Treasure Island. And I was just kind of thinking about, again, those characters that really resonate with you, those characters that perhaps don't live outside of the pages, as, as you've kind of alluded to. They are just tucked kind of nicely and safely in, in that book for us if you were able to wander into a book so hypothetically if, if Anna James was able to to wander into a book perhaps Anna Green Gables are there elements of questions that she asked and dialogue that she had that you would yourself want to have with those characters so I think a lot of the time when I'm doing book wandering scenes into books I have relationships with when I write the first draft it's got a lot more of what I would want to do and say in them and then you have to rein that in and I have to think about you know what I as a 32 year old woman would want to ask Anne is not what 11 year old Tilly who's just found out she's a book wanderer and who doesn't have a mom and Anne doesn't have a mom and you know what Tilly would want to say to her is not what I would say to her so I definitely do a bit of that wish fulfillment when I first write the first drafts but not very little of it makes it past the first draft because even though there's a lot of me in Tilly, you know, she's grappling with very different things than I did when I was her age. Every draft gets further. I think Tilly gets further from me. <laughs> she certainly starts in first drafts as being much more close to me and my my kind of perspective. And I'm sure, like, do you know, I haven't reread the first book. I hate reading it back because by the time it's published, you've read it so many times and you just kind of see the things you want to change. I'm sure if I reread it... I would see that there was absolutely seeds of what I would say. It certainly mirrors like the scenes that I love and kind of moments that I love. But it, it becomes the more the more you draft, the more it becomes, you know, you have to serve the story you're telling until you story. And I think what's really nice is even though you're not coming at it from an 11 year old's perspective, you're writing it, you know, in your 30s, you can still leave it open for children of that age to read it and interpret it in the way that they do and, and have that moment where they say, you know what, yep, she's kind of like me, that feels really nice, that feels really safe. And that's what's so great about just books in general, the way we connect with them. One of my best friends is Catherine Weber. She's a brilliant author. We don't call it a book club, but we talk a lot about what we are reading. And I feel like that's the person that I most enjoy talking about books with. I want to take us on to the last question, which is, I would love for you to imagine that your book or your books are on a shelf and they are great literature frozen in time. And I would love to know which other books you would want to sit alongside yours on that shelf. 
the obvious first answer is Anne of Green Gables. You know, it's so much a part of my reading kind of journey in history. And it's so much a part of Pages and Co that it's the kind of natural book, I think, to put next to it. And one of the things that makes my heart very, very happy is when parents tell me that their children have read Pages and Co and have asked to read Anne of Green Gables. I definitely have to put some Diana Wynne Jones on there. I mentioned Dark Lord of Dirk and that definitely had a big impact on me as a writer. And another book that actually fits nicely with Pages and Co and is just one of my favourite books is a book called Momo by Michael End. My edition is actually called The Grey Gentleman. I think it was originally published as The Grey Gentleman, but now certainly in the UK, it's called Momo. Michael Ann wrote The NeverEnding Story. He's That's what people know him for. But Momo is a book that was just as popular in Germany, which is his first language, but never seemed to really kind of break out here. I don't know in the US if it's famous, but certainly here it isn't. It's better than The NeverEnding Story, I think, which is not to say that um, The NeverEnding Story is great too, but Momo is about an orphan called Momo. It's quite like a fable story and she lives in like an unspecified town um, with her friends and they all tell stories to each other and then the great gentleman which actually I should say so chalk my baddie in book one is definitely inspired by the great gentleman in Momo and his bowler hat is because the great gentleman wear gray bowler hats and they come in there from the time saving bank and they try to convince people to invest their time to use it more efficiently and all of Momo's friends get caught up in this scheme until she's left by herself because there's no time to tell stories and then it has this amazing like epic weird finale that is just one of my favorite ends of a book ever but it's about the power of telling stories and how time spent telling stories and time spent with your friends can never be time wasted and that book had a huge impact on me I have a beautiful edition that's all printed in brown ink that I've stolen from my dad my dad's sister gave it to my dad and I have stolen it so it's but it's very precious and I keep it very safe so that's I think fits nicely with the themes of pages and co but also is just a great book I just want to list all the books that I love but I feel like those three books like Anne of Green Gables, Momo and The Dark Lord of Dirkholm are books that I really love books that had a big impact on me as a reader and a writer and that fit like nicely naturally with the themes of pages and co so I'm gonna resist that it's just list every book that I love which would take hours and just those I'll pick those three I think that is a fantastic bookshelf and I can say with no hesitation that Ellen Montgomery and Lewis Carroll Ellen Montgomery wrote Anne of Green Gables and Lewis Carroll wrote Alice in Wonderland would be very honored that you uh, <laughs> gave us a, a glimpse of their oh I hope so their classics in your book um, <laughs> and the fact that I, I feel like it's a, a ripple effect as well because it's they start with your book and then they the ripple effect of, of reading other stories lovely this has been absolutely phenomenal I know we've been trying to organize this for for months and months and months <laughs> but I'm just so delighted that we've been able to do this I know you said that your third book comes out later this year and then you've got another three books in the, in the series which is fantastic and I can't wait to read all of those as well and fill my shelves with I have an entire shelf dedicated to Anna James books which is fantastic oh, thank you so um for people that want to get in touch with you and learn more about your books what is the best way to do that so I'm a case for books on all social media. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So you can find me there. She is so much fun to follow as well. And if you ever need to have inspiration for what to read or to really follow somebody who knows books uh, inside and out, uh, Anna is an absolute champion and such a joy to, to talk to and to know. So thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really thank appreciate you it. having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!